And it's that time that we come now to the preaching of God's Word, and we're back in the Gospel of John, John chapter 15. And so you can open your Bible to John chapter 15 as we prepare to dive into this passage. The entire purpose of God's redemptive plan is to call a people to himself from out of the world, join them to the Son, and conform them into the Son's image, and this to the praise of the glory of his grace as he puts his transforming power on display. And this requires the working of each person of the Trinity. It involves the work of the Father, who elects a people for himself before the world began, and then commissions the Son into the world to accomplish their redemption. It involves the work of the Son, who through his unblemished life secures for them a perfect record of righteousness and then offers himself as a perfect sinless sacrifice to atone for their sin. And it involves the work of the Spirit, who applies the saving work of the Son to their lives and joins them to him such that they begin to bear his likeness. And that reality is pictured beautifully in the verses of John 15. We're going to go ahead and read that now. John 15 Verses 1 to 11, as the Lord provides a a figure of speech, a metaphor, an analogy that depicts this reality. John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Really a wonderful portion of Scripture that establishes much of the Christian life. And we might ask, why is it here? Why is it here in this portion of the Gospel of John? What what purpose is it serving in the context of this farewell discourse given by our Lord? Well, it's here for at least two reasons. One relates to Jesus. Jesus has been with his disciples virtually every day for the last three years. They've left everything to follow him, and he's supplied their every need. But he has just announced his impending departure. And so the question is, would he continue to be with them? Would he continue to be their source of spiritual strength? And the answer is a resounding yes. Due to their vital union with him, he would continue to furnish them with all they would ever need. The other reason relates to Judas, the defector. How do they account for him? He too had been with them these past three three years. He had done ministry with them. For all intents and purposes, at least outwardly, he appeared to be the real deal. But in the end, he walked away. How are they to account for that? How did that happen? This text provides the answer. And beyond that, this passage teaches us about spiritual fruitfulness, about the source of spiritual fruitfulness, about the way that that fruitfulness is cultivated, about the goal of spiritual fruitfulness, and even the, the blessing of it in our lives, all of which establishes the very essence of the Christian life, urging us to evermore abide in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you desire to live the Christian life to the fullest, 
If you desire to be spiritually productive, if you long to bear fruit in the Christian life for the glory of God, that you would be most useful to him in all that he's doing in the world today, then this portion of Scripture is for you. Because this portion of Scripture sets forth the pathway to spiritual productivity, beginning with the source, taking you into the means, establishing the goal, and even highlighting the rich blessing that comes by means of abiding richly in Christ. We're going to see four aspects of spiritual fruitfulness. Four aspects of spiritual fruitfulness. And the first is this, the source of all spiritual fruitfulness. The source of all spiritual fruitfulness. Look at verse 1. There, Jesus declares, I am the true vine. This is the seventh and final I am statement of John's gospel. Thus far, Jesus has declared, I am the bread of life, declaring himself the source of eternal life. He has declared, I am the light of the world, declaring himself the source of salvation. He has declared, I am the door of the sheep, declaring himself the exclusive entry point into the sheepfold. He has declared, I am the good shepherd declaring himself the one who cares deeply for the sheep, even laying down his life for them. He has declared, I am the resurrection and the life, declaring himself the source of life after death. He has declared, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, declaring himself the one and only way to the Father. And now he declares himself, to be the true vine, heralding himself, saying, I am the true vine, which, as we'll see, declares himself the infallible source of all spiritual fruitfulness. And as with each of the I am statements, this declaration comes with the note of exclusivity. When Jesus says, I am the true vine, he effectively says that though there may be many other vines, he is the one true one rendering all other vines useless, false. And in particular, this statement has significance for Israel. The Old Testament often pictures Israel as a vine, as a vine either producing no fruit or producing bad or degenerate fruit. Israel was an unfruitful vine in spite of the fact she had been given every opportunity to bear fruit for God. And Isaiah captures this reality and does so in Isaiah chapter 5. And really, it would be beneficial for us to read that. And I want you to turn there. Isaiah 5, a portion of Scripture that may be very familiar to you, but nevertheless provides a wonderful backdrop for everything Jesus is saying here in John 15. In fact, it may very well be that Jesus had Isaiah 5 in mind as he made this declaration And initially it begins by Isaiah singing a song for God, whom he identifies as his well-beloved. And then it will transition into God speaking judgment upon Israel. And so look at verse 1, Isaiah 5. Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard, God is now speaking, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now, let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and I will be consumed, or rather, it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoe, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, 
and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. Though God had done everything to give Israel every opportunity to be a fruitful vine, she continually produced bad grapes, really emphasizing the responsibility of man and indicting Israel for her unfruitfulness. And really, he had done everything by demonstrating his power and glory through signs and wonders. He had redeemed them out of their slavery. He had given them his law. He had given them a land. He had given them a temple and even sent his prophets to them. And yet when he expected to find good grapes, behold, it produced worthless ones. And so with the declaration that Jesus makes in John 15, 1, I am the true vine, Israel is set aside as the mediating channel of spiritual productivity. And where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds as the all-sufficient, all-supreme, and infallible source of spiritual fruitfulness, and that with total exclusivity. And back in John 15, if that weren't enough, Jesus isn't just the infallible fruit-bearing vine. His Father is the infallible fruit-cultivating vine dresser. Look at the next part of verse 1. It says that my Father is the vine dresser. And this is exactly what we would expect. As the architect of the plan of redemption, the Father oversees the entire enterprise as he impeccably tends to the health and well-being of the true branches. And this work is described in verse 2. It says there, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit he prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. And so notice the components of this picture. Jesus is the vine, and his Father is the vine dresser. And there are two kinds of branches symbolic of people, those that bear fruit and those that don't. And there are two outcomes. The branches that bear fruit are pruned, that they would bear even more fruit, and the branches that fail to bear fruit are taken away. And so what are we to do with these branches that are taken away? Well, these branches are those whose connection to the vine is merely superficial. These are those who've made a profession of faith, who've associated with God's people, who've maybe even participated in Christian ministry, and who've even lived lives bearing the outward marks of what it would look like to follow Christ, and yet they lack any real connection to the vine and therefore aren't experiencing and have never experienced its life-giving sustenance. They're like those who will say on the last day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, to which Jesus will say, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And who's the prototype for this? I mean, who is the epitome of the, the branch that does not bear fruit and is taken away? It's Judas. Judas is the, the, the epitome of this. He was counterfeit. He was superficial. He had ulterior motives. He was in it for himself. And when push came to shove, he walked away, betrayed Jesus, and ousted himself as the fraud that he was. And so it isn't as though these branches had salvation and lost it. It's that they had never had it to begin with. They had joined themselves to Christ in a very superficial manner. They had, they had maybe even joined themselves to the people of God in a superficial manner, but were never actually connected to the vine. And really, we understand this from the broader context of John's gospel alone. Listen to John 6, 37. There... Jesus declares, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. In verse 39, John 6, 
This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. How about John 10, 27 and following? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Those who are truly connected to the vine cannot perish, will not perish. They are held by the the infallible, all-powerful strength of both the Father and the Son. In fact, we could look at it from a different vantage point. Listen to John 8, 31. Jesus says there, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. One of the characteristics of those who remain, or rather those who are actually in Christ, is that they remain in Christ. Continuing in his word is a mark of a true disciple. And so the Father removes every branch that does not bear fruit. And these branches are symbolic of people who aren't truly joined to Christ They've never experienced regeneration. They were never declared righteous by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They were never redeemed. They were never reconciled to God. The the Spirit of God never indwelt them. They were never sealed with the Spirit. These are individuals who made a superficial profession of faith. And they either fall away or are exposed as false disciples in the judgment. But what about the branches that do bear fruit? What happens to them? Well, we know there, the Father prunes them that they would bear more fruit, that they would actually increase in their spiritual fruitfulness. The word rendered prunes is a word that can be used in both moral and agricultural contexts. In a moral context, it means to make clean or cleanse. And in that sense, pertains to moral purification. In an agricultural context, it can be rendered prunes as it is here and refers to the removal of unwanted growths from a plant. And really, we should keep both ideas in mind since this analogy blends both contexts together, both the agricultural context as well as the moral context. Pruning is to have a cleansing effect. Borrowing from from the imagery here, here's what happens. Sucker shoots begin to grow on healthy branches. And as they grow, they draw the life-giving nutrients of the vine away from the branch. And this hinders their maximum fruit-bearing potential. And so to ensure the branch is receiving all of the vine's life-giving nutrients, these sucker shoots are pruned away, ensuring the fruitfulness of each fruit-bearing branch. And this pictures the work of the Father in the life of the believer. He is faithful and diligent to prune away the sucker shoots in our lives. Those things that interfere with the flow of the life-giving sustenance of Christ, like sin or encumbrances, those things that aren't necessarily sinful but weigh us down and, and hinder fruitfulness or unbiblical thinking or unprofitable pursuits, things that distract us from pure and simple devotion to Christ. Really anything that hinders or stifles our unfruitfulness, or rather our fruitfulness. And this pruning work the Father does in our lives is expressed in the present tense. And so this is an ever and ongoing reality in our lives. The Father is pruning us all the way until we're finally made perfect in Christ. And it can be a rather painful process the removal of sucker shoots from our lives isn't necessarily that which takes place through ease, but rather through great difficulty. Just think of the Apostle Peter, one of the sucker shoots on his branch in the very moment that Jesus is speaking is the sucker shoot of self-reliance. And to expose that self-reliance and to humble Peter Peter would go on to deny Jesus three times, bringing him to the brink of shipwreck, 
of his faith, and yet his faith couldn't fail because he was joined to the vine, and the Lord restored him and used him mightily and powerfully as an apostle that was instrumental in laying the foundation of the church. And yet it came with great pain and agony. Sucker shoots aren't often removed with ease. And so what does God use to prune us? What does pruning consist of? It consists of trial and tribulation. God often uses the school of affliction to prune us. Look at James 1, for example. It consists of adversity that calls for greater reliance on Christ. 2 Timothy 2.1, that we would be strong in the grace which Christ supplies. It consists of God's loving discipline that though initially sorrowful, afterwards yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, Hebrews 12.11. It consists of persecution since all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3.12. But even then, all of the, the means by which God would, would use to prune us in terms of trial and tribulation, all of that is dependent ultimately on the pruning work of the word. All of these matters, the trial, the affliction, the suffering, the persecution, it's the word of God that takes those realities and, and begins to, to prune away the sucker shoots in our lives. Jesus says, after all, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, John 17, 17. And the author of Hebrews says, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, Hebrews 4.12. And so, yes, God uses trials and tribulations, but it's really the, the blades of the word of God that God uses in the context of these difficulties that prunes away the sucker shoots in our lives. And really, Spurgeon captured this in a way that only he really can when he says this, quote, it is the word that prunes the Christian life. It is the truth that purges him. The scripture made living and powerful by the Holy Spirit cleanses the Christian. Affliction is the handle of the knife. Affliction is the grindstone that sharpens the word. Affliction is the dresser that removes our soft garments and lays bare the diseased flesh so the surgeon's knife may get at it. Affliction merely makes us ready for the surgery of the word of God. But the true pruner is the word in the hands of the great vine dresser, unquote. And so God takes difficulties and trials and tribulations and he uses those things in our lives to make us ready for the, the, the piercing work of the word to prune away those things from our lives that are hindering fruit bearing. Will you ask, what does this fruit consist of? Well, it consists of the fruit of the Spirit, to be sure. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It consists of the fruit of repentance, where repentance is an ongoing reality in our lives, where we are regularly dealing with our sin, confessing our sin, and turning from it. It consists of the fruit of obedience, We can borrow from verse 10 of our text for that. It says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And so it certainly includes obedience, the fruit of obedience. In addition, it consists of love for the brethren. That too comes out later on, verse 12 and following. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Even verse 17, this I command you, that you love one another. And so it certainly consists of love for the brethren. It consists of the fruit of perseverance as expressed through abiding in Christ by virtue of remaining in Christ. You are bearing the fruit of perseverance. It consists of the fruit of praise. Hebrews 13, 15, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And so praise is certainly a manifestation of 
the fruit that God brings in our lives. It consists of the fruit of good works, Colossians 1.10. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. And ultimately, it consists of the fruit of evermore reflecting the image and likeness of Christ. That's what all spiritual growth is. It's becoming more and more like Christ. That's the goal of our salvation, to the praise and glory of God. And so Jesus is the infallible vine, the source of all spiritual fruitfulness, and his Father is the vine dresser, and he prunes every branch that bears fruit that it would bear even more fruit, and he removes all of the branches from the vine that are fruitless. And so with that in mind, the source in place the infallible vine dresser, it might be helpful to ask, well, how then do we tap into this spiritual sustenance? How is it that we ensure the the nutrients of the vine are pumping through our spiritual veins? Well, second, note the way of all spiritual fruitfulness. The way of all spiritual fruitfulness. Look at verse 3. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now, what's the Lord saying here? Well, interestingly enough, the word rendered clean here is the noun form of the word rendered prunes in verse 2. So we could render verse 2, as does the LSB, every branch that bears fruit, he cleans it so that it may bear more fruit. And that means being clean and bearing fruit go hand in hand. How do we know that? Because the Father only cleans those branches that bear fruit, and he cleanses them in order that they may bear more fruit. And that means that fruit bearing is a prerequisite for the cleansing work of the Father, and that means that one must first be made clean to qualify. So when Jesus says, you are already clean, he's saying they've already met the precondition for ongoing cleansing. They've already been made fruitful. You say, how? Well, it's there in the middle of verse 3, because of the word which I have spoken to you. The word of God had brought cleansing to them through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit at which time they were joined to Christ. You see, regeneration takes place through the word of God. Listen to 1 Peter 1.23. You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. And so by virtue of the word of God coming to them through Jesus... And then believing on that word through regeneration, they had already been made clean. And we're now in the place being qualified to receive the ongoing work of the Father in pruning away all that would hinder their fruit-bearing potential. They were already vitally connected to the vine. They were truly in him. And that leads to the exhortation, verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. Jesus is saying, now that you are joined to me, now that you are in me, now that you've been made clean, now that my life is pumping through your spiritual veins, Abide in me, which is to say, remain in me, continue in me. It's laying responsibility on the disciples and us to remain vitally connected to Christ. And the justification is given in the rest of the verse, where it says, As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus makes a very stark contrast between the the vine and the branches. The vine has life. The branches do not. The branches are entirely dependent on the vine for fruit bearing. 
We have no life in ourselves. We are entirely dependent on Christ. And so we are incapable of bearing any fruit on our own. This is total and complete inability. And our dependence is so dire that we can't accomplish anything of spiritual value apart from Christ. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We are entirely dependent on Christ for everything. We can't please the Father apart from Christ. We can't please the Son apart from him. We can't please the Spirit apart from Christ. We can't pray. We can't grow. We can't obey. We can't worship. We can't bear fruit. We can't do anything of any spiritual value apart from abiding abundantly in the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, If we can't do anything on our own with respect to our sanctification, namely our spiritual growth, it should be no surprise that we can't do anything on our own with respect to our salvation either. We are just as incapable of anything spiritually profitable in the context of our sanctification apart from Christ as we are in our salvation. God must open the eyes, he must grant the ears, he must open the hearts, he must bring us to new life through regeneration, otherwise salvation would be completely impossible. And so Jesus is emphatic here that apart from him, we can do nothing. And yet notice what he says in the middle of verse 5. He says, he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. The one who abides in Christ, who abides in the vine, he bears much fruit. Because the vine is the all-sufficient, all-supreme, infallible fruit-bearing vine. And as we remain in him, we will bear fruit. So the question is this, how do we do that? We've been joined to the vine. We're we're in the vine. How do we abide in the vine? How do we ensure that we are remaining vitally connected to the vine in such a way that our, our fruitfulness is receiving its maximum potential? Well, obviously we do so through active dependence. We are dependent on the vine. We don't have any self-sufficiency. We can't do anything apart from Christ, so we have to be actively dependent on the vine. So how does that active dependence express itself? Well, it does, it does so through the word, prayer, and obedience. And I can show you that right from the, the verses that we're in. First, notice the word at the beginning of verse 7. Jesus says, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, and you can just stop there. At that point, in that statement, Jesus makes abiding in him inseparable from his words abiding in us. Abiding in Christ and his word abiding in us go hand in hand. And that means to abide in Christ, we must let the word of Christ richly dwell within us, Colossians 3.16. And so the word of God, the word of Christ is critical to abiding in him. Second, notice prayer, second half of verse 7. He says there, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And the the reasoning that I'm using here is a little bit circular, but bear with me. As we abide in Christ... He will answer all of our prayers for spiritual growth and development. If you want to abide in Christ and be fruitful, it's going to require prayer. 
And as you abide in him and pray for greater measures of spiritual productivity, the answer is, the promise is, it will be done for you. And so prayer is absolutely critical to fruit-bearing. And third, third, as we saw earlier, the matter of obedience comes into play. Look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now we're going to look at verse 10 momentarily more fully. But faithfulness to Christ and his word results in abiding in his love, and faithfulness to his word is obedience to his word, and abiding in his love is one and the same as abiding in him. And so through the word, prayer, and obedience, we abide in Christ. And I think it's fair to say this, that the more fully and faithfully you abide in Christ, the more useful and fruitful you'll be in Christ. You see, when it comes to abiding in Christ, it's a matter of degrees, is it not? You know this from your own life. You know there are times in your life when you are abiding more fully in Christ than at other times. It's the same thing here. You're in the vine. Now you're to remain in him. But you can remain in him more fully by virtue of being more devoted to the word, more devoted to prayer, more devoted to heartfelt obedience. And so the call to abide in him isn't to settle for a degree of mediocrity. It's really a call to excel still more. And this is the way of all spiritual fruitfulness, that we would abide in Christ and that we would do so by means of the word, prayer, and obedience. But you might ask this, what's the ultimate objective of this? I mean, why should I value fruitfulness so much? Why, why this matter of fruitfulness? I mean, after all, if I'm in Christ, I've been saved. And so why would I be preoccupied with, with achieving greater degrees of fruitfulness in the Christian life? Well, third, note the goal of all spiritual fruitfulness. Note the goal of all spiritual fruitfulness. And we're going to see this in verses 7 and 8 in particular, but before we get there, we've got to look at verse 6 under the same heading. Verse 6 is this, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. This is a recapitulation, an amplification of what we saw back in the first half of verse 2. And we already know that those who are thrown away were never truly connected to Christ to begin with. And their failure to abide in him simply brings that to light. They're like the seed that Jesus describes being cast by the rocky ground who initially receive the word with joy but have no firm root in themselves and are only temporary. And then when affliction and persecution come, immediately they fall away. And that they're gathered up here and thrown into the fire anticipates the coming judgment when all those who die in their sins will enter into their eternal day of reckoning with the fierce and ruthless wrath of God. And so there's a a weighty warning in this verse to not simply remain superficially connected to the vine but instead to ensure that you are in the vine, that you've been born from above, that you've received new life in Christ, that you've turned from your sin, that you've believed on Christ, that you've looked at his work on the cross as the the finished work of salvation where you're depending on that alone, where you've renounced all reliance on works, all reliance on anything else that would ultimately be used to appeal to God for a right standing before him, that you would rely on Christ alone. And be able to see that his life is is pumping through you. That you are bearing his fruit. Becoming ever more like him in the process of sanctification. Because to be a branch that does not bear fruit. To be so close to the Savior. And yet not come to him by repentant faith. And then be removed from the vine. And thrown into the fire is an awful, horrific outcome 
But I want you to see the goal. The goal of all fruitfulness. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. The idea here is that if you abide in Christ and his words abide in you, then you will pray in a manner consistent with the will of God. And given the context being about fruit bearing, the idea here is that as you pray, you will pray for matters that concern spiritual productivity. And as you come before the Lord, abiding in him richly and make prayers for growth, he is going to answer those prayers. The promise is that as you come to him and petition him for greater fruitfulness, that he will do it. This is really a promise that God will accomplish in your life whatever you ask of him, assuming the condition is being met. And what's the condition? That you abide in him and that his words abide in you. And so this is a magnanimous promise. This is a promise that is given to every Christian that as we abide in Christ and make requests for greater spiritual productivity, God is going to answer those prayers. But why such a promise? Well, it relates to the goal. And the goal's in verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. What's the objective? The objective is to glorify God. And if you're in Christ then your heart has been hardwired to long for the glory of God. And so the reason why you would anticipate, desire, long for greater degrees of spiritual productivity is because it brings glory to God by putting his transforming power on display. It, it demonstrates the, the saving power of the gospel. And it does that to the praise of the glory of his grace. Now, here's the thing. When you ask God to do something in your life, when you ask him to deal with you as it relates to your spiritual fruitfulness, it isn't often that God answers that prayer without difficulty. You see, you look at the promise, and, and you would say, well, this is fantastic, I'm in the vine, I know that, I'm bearing fruit already, this is great. I have a promise that if I ask God anything as it relates to greater productivity, he's going to answer that prayer and that he's going to give me instantaneous fruit. And yet, that isn't often the way God does it. Instead, what he does is he brings circumstances into your lives to challenge you. To, to work on the area that needs to be worked on, to expose the weakness, to expose the sucker shoot, to expose the difficulty. And then he prepares you for the blades of his word as he prepares you for spiritual heart surgery. And so you could make a, a prayer to God and ask him to, to, to work in your life and it will land you in the arena of counseling. You'll be in the heartbeat of a crisis. And you'll need someone with wisdom to come alongside you and, 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 and get into your life and into your heart and apply the word of God to you. And so I often say to folks, be careful what you pray for. Because when you ask the Lord to work in your life, it can be rather challenging. God often answers prayers in ways we least expect him to. And if I left you there, you'd be saying, well, why would I even pray that prayer? I don't want to go through that. Well, let me give you some incentive to be willing to go through that difficulty. A reason to pray a difficult prayer like that and to open yourself up to the pruning work of the Father. And it's the fourth and final aspect of spiritual fruitfulness, and it's this. The blessing of all spiritual fruitfulness. The blessing of all spiritual fruitfulness. 
Look at verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. What we're going to see is that the paradigm of the relationship between the Father and the Son becomes the paradigm in our relationship to Christ. The love of the Father for the Son is the paradigm for the Son's love for us. And so we might ask, how has the Father loved the Son? Well, he's loved him perfectly. He's loved him completely. He's loved him unfailingly. And Jesus declares, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. So Jesus has loved us the way the Father has loved him, with the same perfect, complete, and unfailing love. And then he says, abide in my love. Abide in my love. And he explains exactly how to do that. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And so in the same way that Jesus abides in the love of the Father, we're to abide in his love as well. And Jesus did that through his obedience, so we too are to do that through our obedience. Jesus abides in the love of the Father through his obedience, and we abide in the love of the Son through our obedience. And the blessing is expressed in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is the pathway to fullness of joy. And really note this, Jesus found his greatest joy in abiding in the Father's love. And he did it through his obedience. And that obedience was difficult. Hebrews 5.8 says, he learned obedience through that which he suffered. And he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2.8. And we know from Hebrews 12.2 that he did that for the joy that was set before him. And so not only has Jesus given us his peace, as we saw back in John 14.27, he has given us his joy. Fullness of joy to be realized through faithful obedience to his word. You see, if you recall about the, the peace the Lord gives to us, that's a, a peace that we have to lay hold of, right? We have to apply it, appropriate it, pursue it. The same thing is with this joy. He gives us his joy. It is ours, and yet we have to cultivate it. We've got to pursue it. We've got to apply it. And we do so by means of obediently abiding in his love, where we experience a joy everlasting, a joy inexpressible, a joy that transcends trials and sufferings, a joy that truly satisfies, a joy that bears the fruit of contentment, and one that is distinctly and, dis and, and exclusively found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I ask you, have you experienced that joy? If you're in Christ and you've been joined to the vine, then you've surely tasted of that joy. You know the joy that Jesus is here promising to those who, who abide in him. Are you experiencing it now? Is this joy a reality in your life right now, a joy that transcends trial and tribulation, suffering, persecution, difficulty, circumstances, whatever it is? And if not, is it possible the, the vine dresser, the father is putting his finger on an area of your life that needs to be pruned? where the Father is preparing you for the pruning blades of the word, that you would ultimately bear more fruit and know greater degrees of fruitfulness in the Christian life. This is the place this text leads us. 
It leads us to consider to what degree we're abiding in Christ. Are we even in Christ at all? This is the fork in the road the Lord has brought you to this day. What have we seen? We've seen that Jesus as the true vine is the source of all spiritual fruitfulness. And that his father as the vine dresser works in our lives to make us more fruitful. We've seen the way of all spiritual fruitfulness is abiding in Christ. And that we can do nothing apart from him and that we abide in him through the word, prayer, and obedience. We've seen that the goal of all spiritual fruitfulness is the glory of God. And as we abide in Christ, whatever we ask will be done for us. And we've seen the the blessing of all spiritual fruitfulness, that it's to experience the joy of Christ, fullness of joy, and that we do so as we abide in his love through obedience. And so I ask you, what, if anything, is keeping you from abiding more fully in Christ. If you can identify it, and maybe it's not just one thing, wouldn't it be wise, prudent, beneficial to acknowledge what that thing is, lay it aside, and abide in Christ? I mean, this is the pathway to fullness of joy, the glory of God, fruitfulness in the Christian life. And if you press into the Lord more fully, because he is the infallible, all-supreme, all-sufficient, fruit-bearing vine, fruit-producing vine, you will see spiritual fruit be multiplied in your life and come to taste more fully and appreciate more fully this fullness of joy, which you know will be yours in eternity. When this fullness of joy reaches its climax, its eternal climax, being made perfect in Christ, set apart from sin, and able to worship him the way we've always longed to do. Amen? Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for this time in your word, the reminder of the need to abide in Christ. We acknowledge that so many things vie for our attention. Some of those things are even things that are not necessarily bad in and of themselves. They may even be good. But we acknowledge that to the extent that they distract us from pure and simple devotion to Christ, they are a hindrance to our abiding in him and hinder the spiritual sustenance that he provides. And so, Father, help us, we pray. Use the, the pruning shears of your word to remove from our lives those things that need to be removed. And we pray that we would continue to bear fruit, that you would be glorified, and that we would know fullness of joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.